Take your Bible and open to John chapter 15. John 15, starting in verse 12. Let me read down through verse 17. John 15, starting in verse 12. God's word says, This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another." I certainly hope you had a great time this uh, last week uh, with uh, family and friends uh, on the uh, Thanksgiving holiday. And uh, uh, this whole week, we had a wonderful time on uh, Wednesday evening, Thanksgiving Eve uh, service, just thanking the Lord. And it was really great uh, around our table. We had about 20 folks and just uh, listening to everyone um, read from the scripture, a portion of scripture that was at their place setting, and then just giving thanks for what they are thankful for. And it was just really encouraging. And I was just thankful to be a, a part of that. And so we should always be thanking the Lord uh, again, as I mentioned on, on uh, uh, Wednesday night, not just one night or one day out of the year, but always because he's worthy of our, our praise. And, and again, as a society becomes more and more secular, as we see, it becomes less and less thankful because if there's no God, there's no one to whom to give thanks. Right. And that's what you see in the culture. And that's the, the way it will continue to go. But Thankfully, in God's kindness, that's not the way it is here. We have an understanding of truth because he's given us that truth. Now, I know a lot of people are traveling, as you can see, the, in the room with family and friends this weekend. And nevertheless, I thought it was best just to go back to this portion of Scripture here in John 15. And it's our second time in these verses before us. Last time, I just basically introduced uh, uh, this uh, portion of Scripture. And we spent the entirety of our time looking at verse 15 where Jesus says, no longer do I call you slaves. And then he goes on and says, but I've called you friends. And I pulled that phrase, that both of those clauses out of there, and I showed you that that really is a monumental statement uh, by the Savior. And, and uh, we struggle understanding it uh, properly as we should in the context and the day in which we live, in part because we live in a time, obviously, where there are no slaves, actual slaves, like there were in the uh, early uh, New Testament time. And we struggle in understanding the text and the statement in large part because we suffer under poor theology in many of our churches, not understanding, running away from, even rejecting the most fundamental confession of Christianity, the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. And understanding the lordship of Jesus Christ is a vital issue. In fact, the Bible says you can't even be saved unless you confess the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. Hey, Romans 10 and 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, and God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Jesus Christ is Lord. It's a fact, a reality. And, and no man has the right, no man has the power to make Jesus Lord. Jesus is Lord. Acts two thirty six. therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And because Jesus Christ is Lord, he's our master. He's the one with absolute power, the one with absolute authority over our lives to direct us. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Therefore, the language of the New Testament when it comes to the believer is that we are indeed slaves of Christ. 
That's the New Testament language. Because anytime you have a slave, you always have a master or you have a lord. So therefore, when Jesus says, no longer do I call you slaves, again, referring to the fact that he is the Lord, but no, when I, no longer do I call you slaves, but I've called you friends, again, it's a tremendously important statement. Because as his slaves, we have been elevated to the position of his friends. It's an exalted position, a gracious position. And as I told you, there's only one person in the entirety of the Old Testament that was ever given that title, a friend of God, that would be Abraham. But this is the position, this is the, the position that Christ places us in with a qualifier. And the qualifier is our obedience towards him. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. In essence, you can be my friends, but then you have to obey everything that I command you to do. Because while Jesus may call us his friends, the fact is he still is the Lord. And most certainly the Lord will not save those whom he cannot command. He is the Savior, that's true, but he is the Lord of all lords. He is the King of all kings, and he has the right to direct and control our lives. And a refusal to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ is evidence of false faith. It's evidence of false belief. Jesus, with uh, incredulity, says, uh, uh, um, uh, or incredulously speaks this. He says, Luke 6, verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not say, and do not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? The writer of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, speaking of Jesus, says, He, having been made perfect, became to all those who... Obey him, the source of eternal salvation. The Bible knows no such category, nor does the history of Christianity until the recent past of any idea that you can call yourself a Christian and refuse to submit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It is just not there. It's a modern idea not found in the scripture that really reflects the shallowness and the spiritual poverty of the evangelical church in the time in which we live. Now, if you were not with us last time, you might be encouraged, you might be challenged, you might be helped if you'd go back and listen to that sermon and pick up that issue as I developed, through the, developed it through the entire hour. But this morning, going back into the flow of the text here in John 15, you'll remember that uh, the Lord is with his 11 true disciples. It's Thursday evening on the last week of the life of the Lord Jesus. He, he spent the entire evening with them. Uh, they've fellowshiped together. They've been instructed. They've been challenged. They've been warned. They've been encouraged. Uh, tremendous promises have been made to them. They've celebrated the last Passover meal, uh, which the Lord has transformed into the first Lord's Supper. But now they've left the upper room, and they're making their way through Jerusalem, and they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And again, it's very late on Thursday evening, literally just hours before the Lord is going to be arrested and then crucified on Friday afternoon. But out of his tremendous love that he has for his disciples, he's pouring out his heart to them. He's speaking things to them that are most important to him, such as the nature of true saving faith. The nature of true saving faith. We looked at that a couple of times ago in depth, that illustration of the vine and the, the branches, because he has to deal with the defection of Judas. He has to give them some kind of understanding of why. Uh, he has to give them an under, why Judas defected. He has to give them some kind of understanding of what it looks like really to be a part of Christ. Because the truth is there are people who look like they're a part of Christ, 
There are people who look like they are associated with the person of Christ, but they're not. They're false followers, just like Judas. False branches that bear no fruit, that are cut off, taken away, and burned. So here in the portion of the scripture, uh, with the context of uh, dominating, uh, the dominating theme in the context being love, he's speaking to them, again, what does it mean to be genuine? He's speaking to them, what does it mean to be loved by the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And then he's going to explain exactly what does that mean. What does it mean to be his friend? What does it mean to be the friend of Christ? Because according to 1 Peter 1.18, friendship with Christ results in an intimate relationship with God and brings joy inexpressible and full of glory. On the other hand, the scripture says, James 4 and 4, friendship with the world is hostility towards God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, therefore subject to God's wrath. So we need to understand this issue of love. We need to understand this issue of friendship. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Verse 14 again, you are my friends if you do what I command you. So again, love and friendship here really are the dominating themes. And again, verse 15, no longer do I call you slaves, but I have called you friends. Again, I say it every week, it's just another tremendous portion of scripture when you kind of slow down and take it all in. We who are the slaves of Christ have become his friends. We who are slaves have been elevated. We're still required to be obedient to him because he's the Lord, but we've been placed in a privileged position, a a position of intimacy with our Lord. Our Lord, who's the most marvelous and wonderful, perfect master. We've been raised to a position of friendship. We've been illuminated with the truth. As he reveals to us his heart, his will, God's plans, the future. As we're not just slaves in the relationship that are told what to do, but we are his slaves that we are those there now therefore are intimately involved with divine revelation. Again, look at verse 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all things that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. So we'll start developing all this and unpacking it more here just in a moment. But let me just kind of give you the overview. Last time as we were coming to a close, I said there are four characteristics that you see in this text of Scripture, four characteristics of Jesus' friends that are listed. I'll give them to you, then we'll work our way back through them. But first, the friends of Jesus love each other. Secondly, the friends of Jesus obey him. The friends of Jesus have the privilege of knowing divine truth, and then the friends of Jesus have been specifically chosen by him. They love each other, they obey him, they have the privilege of knowing divine truth, and they have been specifically chosen by him. So let's dive into the text here and look at the first one. Starting in verse 12, the friends of Jesus love each other. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now, this is the second time in a real close context that Jesus has spoken to this issue in this upper room, uh, so-called upper room discourse is now moving from the upper room over to the Garden of Gethsemane. But the first time he spoke to this issue was back in John 13, verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Verse 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So again, you have to take note of the repetition. It's a theme that's coming up again. 
Now, I don't know if you remember back when we went through John 13, 34, and 35, that section of Scripture, but in the context, when Jesus says this about loving one another as I have loved you, he said that right after he had just finished washing the disciples' feet. That was something that was reserved for the lowest of slaves, but nobody in the room, and something that needed to be done, but nobody in the room would do it, so Jesus did it. He stood up, girded himself with a towel, and washed their feet. This group of self-centered, quarreling, jealous men who often argued amongst themselves and contradicted the Lord whom they claimed to follow. They did not, they had done nothing to deserve his love, nothing to inspire it, but yet he loved them in spite of themselves. And these words were said right after he exposed the fact that one of his disciples would betray him. And of course, we know that to be Judas Iscariot, but in the context of the story, no one ever suspected Judas to be a betrayer, but he was. And again, Jesus spoke to the issue of loving one another as a testimony, as a way to give evidence to prove uh, the true from the false. Uh, again, uh, 1335, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Because the truth is sometimes it's just difficult to tell. A true follower from a false follower. Sometimes it's not easy to distinguish. For example, Judas. Many lived with them for three years. He walked with Christ for three years. He lived amongst the other disciples for three years. And all the way up to the end, nobody ever suspected that Judas would be the one who would betray Christ, but he did. So I think the theme is continuing. I think he's amplifying the theme. How do you tell the genuine from the counterfeit? Because we know Satan likes to sow tares amongst the wheat. Satan likes to disguise himself as an angel of light. He likes to uh, appear that he's representing heaven when in reality he and his workers are representing hell. So how can you detect the truth from the false? How can you determine someone who's genuine or genuine follower of Christ from someone who is not genuine, someone who's a counterfeit? Because listen to me, going to church is not the standard. Being baptized is not the standard. Being a member of a congregation is not the standard. Wearing a cross around your neck is certainly not the standard. The first way that you can identify who is a genuine disciple, a true follower of Christ, is love. Again, John thirteen thirty four. a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Verse 35, and by this all men will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. And again, here in John 15, verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So the standard of authenticity is love. J.C. Ryle in his commentary says this, the frequent repetition of this command teaches the vast importance of Christian charities, the word he uses, or Christian love, and the great rarity of it. How anyone can pretend to uh, a, a Christian hope who is ignorant of Christian love is hard to understand. He that supposes he is right in the sight of God because his doctrinal views are correct, while he is unloving in his temper, sharp, cross, snappish, and ill-natured, to the use of his tongue, exhibits wretched ignorance of the first principle of Christ's gospel. The crossness, despitefulness, jealousy, maliciousness, and general disagreeableness among many of the high professors of quote-unquote sound doctrine 
are a positive scandal to Christianity. Where there is little love, there can be little grace. That's a great statement. Where there's little love, there's little grace. And just because you know all the stuff doesn't make you saved. Just because you know all the answers in the theology test doesn't make you a Christian. The standard is uh, uh, that authenticates uh, the issue as love. Because when somebody becomes a true follower of Christ, a genuine believer, that happens because God has done something to the heart. God has changed the heart. God has given a new heart to the one who belongs to him. A new spirit. He has regenerated that person. They've been born again. We talk about this all the time here. Change from the inside out. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away, and new things have come. In fact, the New Covenant promises that reality, a new heart. God's Spirit placed within us. A life marked by obedience. Ezekiel 36, verse 25, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. And moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe all my ordinances. When God in his mercy, through the gospel, calls us to himself, when he calls us to Christ, he calls us to a new life. He transforms and changes us from the inside out. There is an inside-out transformation that is evidence of his life within us. It's evidence of the person of the Holy Spirit now dwelling within us. There's evidence of the the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, we've been working through that analogy in the vine and the branches uh, for a few weeks now. If a vine is, if a branch is genuinely connected in a life-giving fashion to the the vine, it's going to produce fruit because the life of the vine is flowing through that branch. Likewise, if we're really indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, He produces His fruit in us. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is, first and foremost, love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Listen, all of those things, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, they all flow out of the predominant fruit, which is love. They all flow out of that. Now, again, there's a whole lot of people out there that know some information about Jesus. There's a lot of people out there that know some facts about uh, Jesus and some facts about the Bible. So a lot of people have some kind of outward attachment to Christianity or some kind of external form of Christianity. But they're not true followers of Christ. They're not true disciples because they've not been transformed and changed from the inside out. Therefore, they have no love. They have no love. Again, true followers of Christ not only understand the facts concerning his person, but because they have been transformed and changed from the inside out, that transformation is demonstrable. It's evidence. The fact that God has changed the heart, the fact that the Holy Spirit now dwells within a person is seen by others. Because, again, that internal work that God performs on the heart by the one or on the one who truly belongs to him brings out a new person, a new creation, a new disposition within that person. New disposition, new desires, new longings, new hopes, new priorities, new affections, and new love. Again, verse 12, this is my commandment. 
interlaying means an order, a charge. It's, it's something that is spoken by reason of one's office from a superior to an inferior. This is my commandment. It's not a suggestion. This is the master speaking to the slave. This is my commandment that you love one another. Agapa was the word, or agape, probably more commonly we would uh, resonate with. I've given you the definition before, but you need to hear the definition of agape. The writer says this, agape is one of the rarest words in the ancient Greek literature, but one of the most common words in the New Testament. Agape love is God's love. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Agape love, then, is above all self, uh, above all is, self, is a sacrificial. It is a sacrifice of self for the sake of others, even for others who may care nothing at all for us or who even may hate us. Agape love is not a feeling, but a determined act of the will, which always results in determined acts of self-giving. Agape love is the willing, joyful desire to put the welfare of others above our own. Agape love leaves no room for pride, vanity, arrogance, self-seeking, or self-glory. Agape love is an act of choice we are commanded to exercise even in behalf of our enemies. That's a helpful definition. That's a great description of agape love. It is self-sacrificing. It's a determined act of the will to put the welfare and the joy of others above self. That's godlike love. That's a godlike agape love. Therefore, this godly love is always demonstrated by action. The Lord is come, right? The Lord lived, He died, He gave Himself, He rose from the dead. It's always the love of action. And again, the entrance of Christ into the world is the greatest uh, conceivable manifestation of God's love. So again, godly love is much more than human sentimentality. It's much more than human sentimentalism. Uh, Agape love is the kind of love that God demonstrates. It's always giving self, always self-sacrificing. It's always the giving uh, towards others or giving an action towards the help of others. And that's the kind of love that God calls us to demonstrate towards each other. Now, the kind of love that the world demonstrates is always self-seeking. It's always self-serving. There's always something in it that the natural man gets out of or gets for himself uh, when he demonstrates, quote-unquote, love from a human perspective. But godly love's not man-centered. Godly love's not set on self. Godly love, or the love of God, is set on others. And it's set on others in response to the mercies of God in our own life. Because, again, agape love is above all self-sacrificial it sacrifices self for the sake of others, even others who may not care at all about us and who even may hate us. Agape love is not a feeling, but a determined act of the will, which always results in a determined act of self-giving. And that's what Christ is calling us to do. This is my commandment, here it is, that you love one another. That's our duty if we call Christ our friend. This is my commandment that you love one another. And then he sets the standard 
the highest standard of love, and he says, just as I have loved you. Now, of course, we understand we can't love to the same scale that Christ loved since he died for the world, but our love can be in the same way that he loved us. So again, the question is, how did he love us? And again, I've already told you the answer. The answer is actively. Not just in a word, but indeed, self-sacrificially, determinatively, by a determined act of his will, even for those who did not love him, but those who actually hated him. He gave himself up. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Verse 13, greater love has none uh, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Now again, the supreme demonstration of the self-giving love of Christ for his followers is that he laid down his life for them. J.C. Ryle says this, he says, This should be the measure and degree of the love which Christians should have towards one another. It should be a self-sacrificing love, even to death, as was his. He proved the greatness of his love by dying for his friends, even while his enemies. It would be impossible for love to go further. There's no greater love than a willingness to lay down life for those we love. Christ did this, and Christians should be willing to do the same, end quote. Again, greater love has none than this, or no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. James Boyce, in his commentary, points out three unique ways that uh, the death of Christ really surpasses anything we can imagine. It's most unique. Even if our love would go to the extent that we'd actually give our life, that we'd voluntarily die for another, the, the gift of life given by Christ could never or the, the gift of us giving our life could never equal or parallel uh, the sacrifice of Christ. So unique is his sacrifice. Bo- Boyce says that when you stop and reflect on the death of Christ, you need to. we all need to recognize his death is truly exceptional because first off, here's point number one, Jesus did not have to die. In, in the death of Christ, Jesus didn't have to die because he's the immortal one, the eternal one. He is the creator, sustainer, author of life. He didn't have to die. The Bible says death comes because of what? Sin. The wages of sin is death. He was sinless. He had no debt to pay. He didn't have to die. And again, Boyce points out that even if a man would come and give his life in a heroic fashion to sacrifice for another, the, the best that you could say is that all that happened is that he just died a bit earlier than he would have anyway. The thing that marks out the death of Christ is outstanding, that is particularly extraordinary, is the fact that Christ did not have to die under any circumstances. Secondly, Boyce says, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, which surpasses anything that we can understand from a human level, making it exceptional, is the fact that he knew he would die. He knew he would die. i got to make sure we don't confuse this. This is not the same in the back of our minds that we always try to block out, but in the back of our minds, at least we acknowledge the fact that we're mortal. One day we'll die unless the Lord returns by way of rapture of the church. We're all going to face death. That's not the issue here. Because, again, Jesus did not have to die. 
He is the eternal one, the sinless one. But he knew he would die, and here's the issue. He knew he would die because that was his choice. By his own choice, he knew he would die. Again, look at the text. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Back in John 10 and 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Verse 17 of that chapter. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. Verse 18, no one has taken it from me. No one has taken my life from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down. They have the authority to take it up. The death of Christ was absolutely voluntarily, absolutely voluntary. Again, by his own testimony, Jesus is going to deliberately go to the cross to die. He chooses that path. He chooses to die, again, not for himself, but for us, for our salvation, dying as our substitute, laying down his life for his friends as there's no greater love than that. The third point that Boyce makes is that the death of Christ, or what makes the death of Christ so extraordinary above any other, is that Christ gave his life for us, or Christ laid down his life for us, not when we were his friends, but while we were still his enemies. He gave his life for us, not when we were his friends, but when we were still his enemies. He gave his life for us when we were still in rebellion against him. Paul in Romans 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us. And while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to the death of his son, right? While we were still his enemies. And Boyce says here, especially, do you see the wonderful love of the Lord Jesus Christ? He says, as long as we think of ourselves as being somewhat good in God's sight, we don't see it. But when we see ourselves as God sees us, the surpassing worth of the love of Christ becomes evident to us. How many people have you talked to in your life, and perhaps even you this morning, who think you're not that bad? I don't sin as bad as that guy over there. I'm not as bad as that person over there. I think there are people who are born good. Just had somebody tell me that just a week or so ago. I just went through the gospel and said there's none righteous, and then they turn around and say, well, I think there's some people who might uh, escape that clause. (laughs) There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory. We don't, in the culture, without question, we have no concept of the love of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ because we think we're good. And the reason that the world rejects the person of Jesus Christ is they don't see their need of a Savior. I'm not that bad. I try hard. I give to charities. Try to be a good neighbor. God demonstrates his love towards us while we are yet sinners. Can't receive the benefits of the Savior until the fact you see that you're a sinner in need of the benefits that he provides. So Christ dies while we are his enemies. And again, Christ dying for us while we were his enemies speaks to the issue, obviously, of substitution. God, he, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the activity of God in the realm of salvation. 
Romans 5, 6, while we are still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One would hardly die for a righteous man, perhaps though a good man, uh, some would dare to uh, even uh, die, but God demonstrates again his love towards us that while we were yet sinners. 1 Peter 3, 18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. That's the only route to the Father through Christ. So when Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down, for his, lay down his life for his friends, that's a tremendous statement. And the very clear implications of that statement is that Jesus didn't die in order to save every person. But he died to save those who were one time his enemies, who have now been made his friends, who now have been chosen by God to be the beneficiaries of Christ's redeeming work. It's really the doctrine of limited atonement, which limits the saving work of Christ and his death only in terms of the scope of the persons for whom it was intended. Again, Jesus, speaking of his coming death in this way, says that he will lay down, not, lay down his life not for everyone, but he's going to lay down his life for who? His friends. One writer, uh, John Phillips, says this, limited atonement doesn't denigrate but rather exalts Christ's death. While the atonement was limited in terms of the persons from whom he died, it was unlimited in terms of the power to save those who believe. Christ really and fully saved his people when he died on the cross, but it was only for them that he made atonement for sin. It's a tremendous statement. Greater love has no one than this that one laid down his life for his friends. And when you stop and think about the suffering of Christ and the greatness of his suffering, uh, a lot of times I think we perhaps overemphasize the physical suffering of Christ. Uh, I, oftentimes you see that kind of uh, alluded to in movies, which I would say if Christ wanted you to see that, or if God wanted you to see the physical suffering of Christ, he would have waited to produce this book till video came out. Just a thought. Maybe there's certain things our eyes should not see. And maybe there's certain things that are beyond horrifically uh, uh, to describe that we shouldn't know. Obviously, the people who lived at the time, they understood the horror of crucifixion, and, and we should have some understanding of it. But in the issue of the suffering of Christ on the cross and his physical suffering, which was no doubt dreadful and intense, I think what we fail to recognize is as great as the physical suffering and the emotional suffering was, the, the physical suffering and the emotional suffering had to pale in comparison to the spiritual suffering. And you can't put that on tape. He died a terrible death. He died and suffered a degrading physical death. But the most horrific aspect of the cross of Christ had to be the separation that he endured from the Father when he became the sin-bearer. When he suffered under divine wrath, the divine wrath of his Father, the divine wrath of God. <coughs> Excuse me, when he who knew no sin became sin. Our sin-bearer, dying in our place. Therefore, again, if you stop and consider both the physical and the spiritual suffering of Christ, that he voluntarily endured for us, that he chose to endure on our behalf, I think you come to a greater uh, appreciation of the statement greater love 
has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends. That's the love that he endured on Calvary's cross, and that's the same love that he has for us now presently. Proving our, his love for us in time now because of what he's done upon Calvary's cross. So the first characteristic of Jesus' friends, how can you really identify who somebody really belongs to him, is they love each other. There's a genuine love for other brothers and sisters in Christ, a, a genuine love for fellow believers, and that love knows no limits. 1 John 3.16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So again, friends of Jesus love each other. They've been loved by the greatest possible, uh, in the greatest possible fashion by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So the command is, follow me. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And as I was working my way through the notes here again, I just stopped and said, you know, I've got to make a... <clears throat> excuse me, I mentioned of something here real quickly. I think we need to understand this. Step, take a step back and really understand what Christ is calling us to. If you want to be his friends. Because when Christ is calling us his friends and calling us into that relationship, he's really calling us to a radical, extreme friendship. Say what do you mean by that? Well, it's what he said in Matthew 16, verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You want to be a friend of Christ? It's a call to die. It's a call to die. Now, maybe it's metaphorically, maybe it's not. Throughout the history of the church, there's been a whole lot of people who wished it was metaphor, but it was not. The cost to follow Christ is going to be high. I was just speaking to a man the other day who the Lord's working in his life. And, I'm tell- and I told him, I said, that's great. I'm really encouraged by it. But let me tell you, you better stop and count the cost. As excited as you are about these feelings that you have and as God's working in your life, you better stop and count the cost because it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you in your family. It's going to cost you in your, your friends. It's going to cost you at work. It's going to cost you in the culture have you noticed have you noticed it's a godless culture? Have you noticed it's a Christless culture? Have you noticed that they want nothing to do with God, nothing to do with Christ, nothing to do with the truth, and the whole culture is just run off the abyss under the abandonment of God, giving them over to a depraved mind, having them not understand anything that's truth, and putting a spirit of delusion upon them, and you walk into the room and you say, I represent Jesus, and I've got some really wonderful news for you. Listen, that's tremendous. You should do that, but you better expect pushback. Don't be surprised when it happens. It's coming. It's here. This is a radical relationship and an extreme friendship that Christ is calling us to who take the label of the friend of Christ. Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 31, he says, I die daily. Paul realized every day could be his last. Every day could be his last day when he served the Lord. 
his last day to get the gospel to people. In essence, he was saying, my life is always on the line. And you look at the testimony of Paul in the New Testament, you see that, right? As a Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus, he didn't understand the truth. God opens his mind to the truth. He understands that Jesus is the Messiah. He can sit down and go through the entire Old Testament. And he shows his other Pharisees, his other brothers in the religious system of the day, that Jesus is the Christ. And they say, oh, good, man, come here. We'll take you up and we'll put a spot for you on the, on the platform. They said, no, we're going to kill you. I die daily. So again, I just think we need to realize and not kind of sugarcoat the whole thing and understand the relationship that he's calling us to. It's an extreme relationship, an extreme friendship. And he's calling us to an extreme love. This is my commandment that you love one another. Here it is, just as I have loved you, greater love has no one than this and one lay down his life for his friends. And that love that the Christian shows to the other Christian because of the love that they have been shown by Christ, it's one of the greatest and most powerful apologetics to an unbelieving world. Again, John 13, 35, by this, by this kind of love, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Because the world doesn't love like that. The world's only interested in self. John, in his first epistle, he echoes the words of the Lord here in this passage in John 15. 1 John 3.16, I think I referenced it earlier. Again, by this we know, by the, or we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for the brethren. John gives some practical implications of that truth. Verse 17, 1 John 3, verse 17. Whoever has this world goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. I think the times in which we live and the culture in which we're a part of, again, under the sovereign hand of God, I think the times are going to give us an opportunity to demonstrate this Christ-like love in a tangible fashion. So again, the friends of Jesus show their love for one another humbly, graciously, selflessly, tangibly, self-sacrificially serving and loving each other. In fact, you cannot be a true believer without having love for other believers. 1 John 2, verse 9. The one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there's no cause for him to stumbling. But the one who hates his brother in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. 1 John 5, 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. He's just saying again, the friends of Jesus show that love tangibly, practically by meeting the needs of other brothers and sisters in Christ. Not selfish love like the world loves, but selfless love like Christ demonstrated. The second characteristic of the friends of Jesus is obedience. It's obedience, verse 14. You are my friends 
if you do what I command you. Now, I'm in agreement with J.C. Ryle here, who says the verse seems to be closely connected to the preceding one. I agree. You are my friends for whom I will lay down my life if you do what I command you. Because those who are Christ's friends love him and they obey him. Those whom he has voluntarily laid down his life for. John 14, verse 21 says, He who has my commandments and keeps them. He who has my commandments and obeys me. Right? It is he who loves me and he who loves me shall be loved by my Father and I will love him and disclose myself to him. So again, you're my friends if. Now you are my friends if you do what I command you because the essence of sin is rebellion against God. And turning from sin necessarily implies obedience to God. So in the scripture, you see a very close connection between faith and obedience. They're closely linked together because your life cannot be characterized by both lawlessness or disobedience and obedience. Your, your life can't be characterized by both disobedience and obedience. First uh, John 3, 6 says, No one who bides in him sins. In that First John 3, 6 passage, the word sin is in the present active, meaning as a present, habitual, continual act of one's life. No one who abides in God can sin on a regular pattern. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. You say, look, there's an internal transformation. And again, Hebrews 5, 9, having been made perfect, he becomes to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Again, Jesus is not the source of eternal salvation to those who stay in rebellion against him, those who willingly disobey him. So again, obedience is another mark of the true Christian, the one who has a genuine friendship with Christ, a genuine relationship with him. You're my friends if you do what I command you. Ryle says we are not to dream that we're Christ's friends if we do not habitually practice his commands. Great statement, right? We shouldn't think that we're friends of Christ if we habitually fail to practice his commands. So obedience to Christ is one of the great tests of true Christianity. It's one of the great marks of genuine saving faith. John 3 and 36, he who believes the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. Conversion, we understand, Paul says, takes place in the heart. When we who were slaves of sin become obedient, again from the heart, right? We were slaves of sin, we became obedient from the heart. Romans 6, uh, verse uh, 17, that's conversion. So again, there's a whole lot of people who claim to be associated with Christ, yet they live in habitual patterns of sin. They reject Christ's plain command, and therefore they are, according to Matthew chapter 7, the word of Christ, they're on the broad road that leads to destruction, not on the narrow path that leads to life. Again, disobedience is what defines the unbeliever. Disobedience marks the life of the unbeliever. Peter defines unbelievers like this and. 1 Peter 4.17, those who do not obey the gospel. Those who do not obey the gospel of God. And again, we've done this numerous times, but Matthew 7, Jesus' word says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Again, we talked about this last time, so I don't need to go into it in great detail. If Jesus Christ is Lord and he is, then he needs to be obeyed. It's that simple. If Jesus Christ is the Lord and he is, he needs to be obeyed. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Now look, obedience doesn't earn our salvation. 
We're saved by grace through faith, not as a result of our works, so no one should boast, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But obedience most certainly is an inevitable result of salvation. Obedience is proof of salvation, that a person has a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Again, you look at the analogies that Christ uses when he's talking about believers and his relationship to them. He talks about in terms of intimacy. He has an intimate relationship with his believers. He calls us his sheep and he's the shepherd. John 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. They obey me. John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, then you're truly my disciples. So true disciples are obedient to the word of God, the word of Christ. And if we're saved, that means, again, using these kind of intimate pictures of analogies here, we've been brought into the family of God, the family of Christ. 1 John 3, 9, therefore no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. He cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God, the children of the devil, are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. 1 John 5.18, we know that no one is born of God's sins. Again, on a habitual practice, pattern of life. But he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Obedience, the practice of righteousness, demonstrated in the life of the true believer. So again, the friends of Jesus, they... They love each other. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Secondly, the friends of Jesus obey him. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And again, I just point out the fact that while Christ in his great condescension calls us in his grace his friends, nevertheless, we remember the reality of who he is in his own words when he says, John 13, 13, you call me teacher and Lord or rightly so I am. We are his friends. He is still our master, our Lord, who we must obey. Third point, Jesus' friends have the privilege of knowing divine truth. Jesus' friends have the privilege of knowing divine truth. Verse 15, <clears throat> no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. So again, no longer do I call you slaves. We spent the entirety of that, our time last time looking at that issue of slaves and masters. And for the most part, slaves were nothing more than a living tool. They were told what to do. They were never told why they should do what they were told to do. For the most part, slaves never, do, never knew their master's plans or goals or feelings. Again, they simply just did what they were told. Very rarely did they have an intimate relationship with their earthly masters. But that's not the case with Jesus and his followers, his disciples. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all things I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. So again, those two lines, no longer I call you slaves, but I call you friends. And then this disclosure, for a slave doesn't know what his master is doing, all the things I've heard from my father, I'm going to make known to you. So again, we are slaves of Christ, but incredibly, he calls us his friends. And again, the only person who had that privilege in the Old Testament was one man named Abraham, who was the, the friend of God. But Christ has elevated us to a position where we have knowledge. Where we have knowledge. William Barclay says this. He says this idea of friends of Jesus, or the, that phrase, I have called you friends, <clears throat> comes out of an old custom. He says this. 
He says, this phrase is lit up by the custom practice in the courts of both Roman emperors and kings in the Middle East. At these courts, there was a very select group called the quote-unquote friends of the king or quote-unquote friends of the emperor. At all times, they had access to the king. They had even had the right to come to his bedchamber at the beginning of the day. They talked to him before he talked to his generals, his rulers, his statesmen. His friends were more close. The friends of the king were those who had the closest and most intimate connection with him, close quote, uh, out of Barclay. So again, as I told you, for the most part, slaves, the life of a slave was very difficult, very harsh. But there were some slaves that didn't have it quite that bad. There were some slaves who were loved and some slaves who were cared for. They and their families uh, so so well loved that they said, I'm going to serve my Lord, my master for the rest of my life. You see that in the Old Testament. What happened in the Old Testament, then one of the signs was the the slave would take his ear and put it up against a post and they'd take an awl and poke a hole in it. And that would be an external sign to indicate that this is a willing slave for life for his master. Now, as I told you last time, in, in the Roman culture, everything was done by the slaves. Uh, every profession was before by slaves. Again, the, the Romans hated slavery. They just didn't mind enslaving everybody they could, right, because they didn't want to work. So everybody did from menial tasks were done by slaves. Even skilled profession, doctors, teachers, slaves performed that function. As a result, because there were so many slaves, remember I told you, I think there's like one out of two people in the population were slaves. As a result, there were some slaves who had risen to a high position. They actually became, quote-unquote, again, friends of the king, friends of the emperor, friends of the Caesar. And everybody understood that. And although they were slaves, they had access to the king. They were trusted. Uh, they were faithful because they were filled with fidelity and dutiful to their master. So they had risen through the ranks until they were trusted enough to become intimate friends of the king. So they did have the right to enter into the bedchamber. They were the the last one to see the king at night, the very first one to see the king in the morning. Uh, They were the ones who cared for the king's most intimate personal needs on a personal level. Uh, The king literally trusted his life to them. They became protectors of his life. They would know his plans, his purposes. They would be more well-informed of what the king was thinking than or the emperor was thinking than a wife because in, in these days, wives weren't necessarily companions. They were more of a convenience, if I can say it that way. And that's the picture that you have here. We're slaves of Christ, but he has brought us in internally. He's brought us to an intimate position. He's placed us in an elevated position. No longer do I call you slaves, but I call you friends. And although Jesus is the Lord, our surrender to him is never just in blind obedience because he's told us everything we need to know. He shares with us who are his friends everything that he has received from the Father. For the slave does not know what his master is doing. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. We know the heart of the Father. We know the heart of Christ. We know their desire to save. We know their plan to save. We know the truth. John 8, verse 31, If you abide in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. In John chapter 17, when Christ is praying to the Father, verse 6, He says, I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they kept your word. 
Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and I received them, and truly understood that, uh, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. We we have the privilege of knowing divine truth. We have the privilege of having the mind of Christ. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave doesn't know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends, for all things I've heard from my father I've made known to you. Paul says at the end of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 16, verse 25, Paul says, as friends, we have insight into the mysteries of God. The mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now has been manifested by the scripture and the prophets according to the commandments and the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. Now, in the New Testament, that term mystery <clears throat> refers to that that has been hidden and the past that now has been revealed by Jesus to the apostles and through them to all of us as believers. And if you look at the New Testament, I actually did this this morning, just plugged in the word mystery. Uh, the, new, the, the, the New Testament reveals to us all kinds of mysteries, those things that were hidden in the past but now have been revealed. The mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, the mysteries of Israel's hardening, the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the rapture, the mystery of God's will, the mystery of Jews and Gentiles coming together in one body in Christ, the mystery of the union with, of Christ in the church, the mystery of Christ indwelling believers, the mystery of the Messiah that he's going to come and be God incarnate, the mystery of lawlessness that's going to be fully revealed in the person of the Antichrist, the mystery of faith, the mystery of godliness. Again, the ability for us to understand the deep things of God, the spiritual things of God that he has given to us is because we are in friendship with him. He is our friend. He has made us his friends. He's brought us in. He's revealed God's will, God's heart to us. Those who are not his friends, those who do not have that relationship with him, they have no understanding of the truth. They have no insight. So again, we as the friends of Christ stand in an exalted position because we're the recipients of divine truth, the recipients of divine knowledge. So again, the friends of Jesus love each other. Friends of Jesus obey him. The friends of Jesus have the privilege of knowing divine truth. And lastly, friends of Jesus have been specifically chosen by him. Friends of Jesus have been specifically chosen by him. Verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name he may give to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. That doesn't need a lot of explanation. The friends of Jesus have been chosen specifically by him, specially by him. That applies not only to the disciples, but it applies by way of extension to all believers. We understand that here. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Eklego. We get our English word elect. It's a doctrine of election. You're very familiar with that in this fellowship. In this most radical relationship, friendship that we're being called into, look, we didn't volunteer. We didn't voluntarily enter into this friendship relationship, this deep, intimate, special relationship with us. He chose us. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, it says in the book of Ephesians. 
You do not chose me, or do not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should bear fruit. So it's not only election unto salvation, but it's election unto commission. Tithemi is the word appointed. We've been chosen, we've been elect, and appointed. That means we've been set apart, ordained for a special service. We've been elect, chosen, to go and do something, to produce something on a spiritual level that we should go, the text says, and bear fruit. It really is a preview of the Great Commission, right? It's not been given yet. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Right? Make disciples. As you go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey, to observe all that I command you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Again, it's the fruit of righteousness. It's righteousness in your own life. It's spiritual influence towards righteousness in other people's lives. It is declaring the gospel. It's winning people to Christ, preaching the gospel. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And here it is, and that your fruit should remain. It's the word meno. Remember that? That your word should that your fruit should abide. It's the same word. Eternal righteousness. Gained. Eternal righteous fruit that just should remain. Fruit that should remain that just keeps going on and going on and going on. E- eternal righteous influence in your life and the life of others. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go bear fruit, that your fruit should remain that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Again, it's not a blank check, but in the context of bearing spiritual fruit that remains, you see a very important connection between prayer and evangelism. Seeking the Father to fulfill the purposes for which he sought us, that we would bear fruit, spiritual fruit, spiritual fruit in our lives, spiritual fruit in other people's lives. And then the bookend, verse verse 17. This I command you, that you love one another. And what a great privilege we have, right? To know Christ. What an elevated position he has called us to be his friends. To enter into his presence at any time. We're personal friends of the King of Kings. Personal friends of the Lord of Lords, the creator of the universe. Loved by him eternally. Therefore commanded by him to love others likewise. As we share in God's kindness, we receive the kindness of God and we share that kindness to others around us who are perishing.